The anti-Semitic conditions, the evidence from science that was saying that, look, things are getting worse. All the trends are heading in the wrong direction and all the science supports those trends. And if you extrapolate that out or anticipate it into the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, then we've got a big problem. And sure enough, it turned up this summer. We ought not lose the opportunity to take the lessons from this summer about what climate is capable of producing. It's not a new normal, it's the start of a trajectory, a very slippery slope into more intense and frequent activity. We really have to get a grip on what it is that's valuable, what are we prepared to lose, and what are we not prepared to lose, because we are going to lose things. Most of our liberties and freedoms are currently being denied in quite a substantial way. Would we have tolerated that decision on day one? Absolutely not. We've had to navigate our way into the denial of freedom and liberty. We couldn't do that quickly. So we've just come through a society that was completely volatile and flammable that could burn, and it did. We just saw the manifestation of climate effect this summer, and I just don't know how much more evidence we need. (laughs) I really don't. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the ANU National Security College. And those remarks you just heard were made by Mr Mark Croswell, the former Director General of Emergency Management Australia, and we are talking to him today about the policy challenges of responding to national emergencies from climate change to COVID-19. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. And welcome to this final episode in the series of looking at climate change as a national security issue. I am coming to you from inside the Pillow Fort studio in the bio bunker of the NatSec pod compound here in Canberra, Australia. Due to the outbreak of coronavirus, we are unable to host guests in the Policy Forum studio, and thus we have Mark Croswell on the line to talk to us about the policy challenges in responding to national crises from climate change to COVID-19. Mark is the former Director-General of Emergency Management Australia, a division within the Department of Home Affairs that is responsible for responding to all aspects of disaster management, including the mega bushfires which we experienced here in Australia this past summer. Mark held this role for five and a half years after near 30 years serving in state and territory as well as national leadership roles dealing with natural disasters and crisis management. After leaving the role of Director General EMA, Mark led the National Resilience Task Force, which was commissioned by the Commonwealth Government to study the cause and effects of disasters in Australia and to help understand where to prioritise efforts to reduce loss and harm across society. 
Mark now works in a private capacity and you can find his publications on emergency management listed on his website, ethicalintelligence.com.au. Now, before we talk to Mark, I just want to remind everyone that due to the coronavirus outbreak, we are recording this podcast from our respective homes. I am literally under the doona and surrounded by the cushions off my lounge in an attempt to reduce resonance and also the noises from my neighbourhood. This is the way things are for now, and we appreciate your understanding, and we will be back in the studio as soon as we can to again bring you the silky smooth audio you are used to on the NatSec pod. But now, let's chat to Mark. G'day, Mark. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thanks, Chris. Australia's National Disaster Risk Reduction Framework states right up front that climate change is intensifying the severity of natural disasters. Is it accepted fact in policy-making circles today that climate change is having a serious impact on Australia's national security? I think it's becoming more acceptable, but I think that's uh, very recent. Um, certainly as head of task force and as Director General of EMA, um, the, the whole notion of climate change was highly contestable across the jurisdictions, and that included the Commonwealth as well, of course. Um, some jurisdictions were, were ahead of the curve and, and some were way behind it, and it was a very difficult conversation to have. So most people tended to avoid it. They used terms like changing climate, for example, or increasing frequency increasing frequencies and intensities of natural hazards but not make reference to the climate drivers that were causing that. Um, that got better as time went on and I think um, jurisdictions got closer to accepting uh, human-caused climate change as an underlying factor or con con uh, con contribution towards these more intensifying and, and frequent events. I think what solidified it really was last summer and there was definitely a, a policy pivot and a narrative pivot for the federal government on climate change. And they got there. It was certainly a bit uh, clumsy. I think the narrative and the position was variable and um, and somewhat ambivalent. And then, of course, it firmed up and became uh, pretty crystal clear by the end of the major fire impact for this summer that the government was on board with uh, climate change, uh, human-caused and very much focusing on adaptation uh, and certainly pivoted on the question of adaptation. The Prime Minister opened up the door uh, well and truly on the need to move forward on the adaptation of climate change effect, particularly in the natural hazards world, uh, but didn't really do anything in the terms of mitigation or causation of climate change. So acknowledged it and then um, put forward existing government policies on how they were going to deal with it and sort of intimated that if they met the targets ahead of time, that perhaps more targets or more adventurous targets could be pursued once they'd hit that threshold. So definitely there was a change, but really, to be straight up about it, Chris, it took the lived experience of last summer to really bring it together. So the risk reduction framework had anticipated these effects uh, and impacts, and did its best, and to the government's credit, they adopted the framework in full without changing a word, essentially. So they did accept the position on climate change from the task force's advice, and I do think that positioned them well to navigate the complexity of the policy discussion uh, in the ensuing summer. So we got there, but it was a very difficult road, fraught with 
differences of opinions and uh, different stages along the, the, you know, the life cycle of public policy within each of the jurisdictions. It's unfortunate that it took a large natural disaster for us to come to that decision making and we are going to get into the discussion on those bushfires but just a quick follow-up question from a colleague of mine at the National Security College, Dr Kath Gleeson. What is the helpfulness or otherwise of thinking about things like natural disasters such as bushfires, floods, storms and so on and climate change in general as national security issues? Does securitising them help buttress the effectiveness of the response or does it create more problems for you? It's a really interesting question. Um, I think it's a bit of both. I think the reason that people want to securitise climate change is because it's presently where the where the government is on public policy on a range of other issues and and has elevated uh, national security more broadly as a key policy platform of the government so which is their want to do and their right to do as a as an elected government of uh, you know the Australian people so so they've made that their platform and I think people have seen uh, national security as a way of elevating the status and importance of climate change is it a national security issue? Yes, I think it is. Does it concern me? It does insofar as if it's securitised too much and we classify it too much, then what we end up doing is taking a global common called climate and putting it into a classified and constrained environment where we can't talk about it to the extent to which we need to because we've securitised it. And that bothers me a lot. So there are security aspects to climate change, no doubt about that. Uh, and I think they need to be recognised in the security context, but we should be vigilant about the extent to which it's securitised, the extent to which we then classify it, and the extent to which we constrain conversation, discussion or knowledge about some of the more profound effects that are coming up for the country. So I understand it. I can empathise with those who wish to elevate it on the policy uh, platform of any any government, really, um, but I'm cautious that we may end up constraining it, uh, choking it, or limiting its accessibility in terms of the broad-scale knowledge and understandings of, it, of its effects, because the predominant effects will become a security issue. All right, well, so let's, let's drill down into that. For you, what are the national security implications for Australia from climate change? And I'm, I'm thinking both in terms of, you know, the actual experience on the ground, such as, you know, the impact on national infrastructure or living standards, ability to deliver public good and so on. And what are the impacts in terms of crafting policy to deal with the challenge? It's a global issue, of course, and I think that's where the security issues really arise. I mean, mass migration, for example, and you know, the shifting of significant populations across the globe in search of um, basic necessities, really, um, shelter, warmth, uh, food, water, that disruption of people across the globe will inevitably put pressure on borders and all the policies that attach. So that alone is, you know, obviously concerning and needs to be addressed and, and is being addressed, of course. I think the loss of production, economic production, food production, for example, the how we use the land in Australia, um, how it contributes to our GDP. Uh, if that's to be severely constrained by climate change, that brings with it security risks. Um, there is the potential for, I wouldn't say widespread civil unrest, but certainly a dissatisfied community if we don't take seriously um, our response to climate change and get ahead of it in terms of public policy and start to incentivise 
uh, the, the shifting of markets or the changing of land use in anticipation, well, certainly in response to what's happening now, but also in anticipation of what, you know, generally speaking, we can anticipate or foresee in the next 20 to 30 years. So if we don't do that and we have, you know, major collapses in our economy or our markets or the products and services that we produce and give to the world, then I think we're going to be in a whole world of pain. So is it a security issue? Uh, Look, it is for those reasons and other reasons, of course. And so we should take it seriously, I think, uh, absolutely. And I think it is a security issue. But it's also an issue of quality of life, general prosperity of the nation, well-being, uh, and being in accord with nature. And increasingly, I think people are starting to realise that we're not in accord with nature and that's causing them great consternation and grief. And I think we need to get back to listening to what the climate is trying to tell us. And uh, if we want an example of that, then we've only got to look at last summer, you know, the preceding drought and the severity of that drought, and then what it produced in terms of um, catastrophic fire effects on the landscape of much of uh, the east coast of Australia. So that's a climate that's rupturing or intensifying, is becoming, you know, increasingly unstable in terms of extremes, and we're dealing with the effects of that. We've really got to get in tune with what that means uh, from a security and a broader perspective, no doubt about that. Yeah, so in your submission to the Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade Committee's 2017 inquiry into the national security implications of climate change, you said that climate change is heightening the severity of natural hazards. We are already seeing increasingly frequent and intense extreme heat events and we will see more extreme fire weather and longer fire seasons Along And you said, along with other risks such as rainfall and sea rise levels. So I'm assuming based on your last response, the 2019-2020 bushfire season where we had the megafires all up and down the east coast and elsewhere in Australia, that was exactly what you were warning us about. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely it was. I think, look, people have used extensively the word unprecedented this summer. It concerns me a lot. I think statistically, spatially, temporally, it's valid. So fire seasons went longer than they have done in the course of recorded uh, European history. The fires were more intense than, than we have seen in certainly more recent years. There are some unprecedented aspects in that regard, but really none of it was surprising. These effects were forecast in the science some 20 years ago. The drought effect that arose, again, driven by uh, climate effect, climate change, Uh, well understood in climate science, uh, earth system science, manifested and caused us no end of grief. The antecedent conditions, highly overt, there for all to see and experience, nothing ambiguous about any of it really, and in accordance with scientific predictions from 20 years ago. So I'm not for a second suggesting that I really knew anything more than anyone else who was informed on the issue, but it was about saying to the government of the day, look, you cannot ignore this thing is coming. The antecedent conditions are already presenting. I mean, even back when we gave that evidence, we were seeing cyclonic activity in Queensland and rainfall activity, which was breaking records. We were seeing record-breaking events driven by climate well before this summer. And so the antecedent conditions, the evidence from science, and I think just basic logic was saying that, look, things are getting worse. And... um, all the trends are heading in the wrong direction and all the science supports those trends. And if you extrapolate that out or anticipate it into the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, then we've got a big problem. And sure enough, it turned up this summer. 
it's been dwarfed on one level by COVID-19, of course, which has its own complexity, but we ought not lose the opportunity to take the lessons from this summer about what climate is capable of producing really as a starting point. Uh, it's not a new normal, it's the start of a trajectory. And I keep reminding people of that, that this is the start of a very slippery slope into more intense and frequent activity in the space of flood, fire, storm and cyclone. And we need to prepare for that. So so I think the evidence was pretty clear. We were trying to warn governments. Uh, but look, Chris, it's like most of these things that, you know, nobody wants a crisis. Um, as Director General of EMA, I didn't want a crisis, even though that was my job. But it was my job to brief the government and advise them on what I thought might happen and what we might do about it. And I think any government has that obligation. They essentially are the insurer of last resort. And so they can't step out of these spaces anyway. So even if they don't want to know about them or don't like what's about to happen, they still have to deal with their effects. So I think we've had the lived experience now. And for most people, unfortunately, wisdom is learnt from lived experience. So we've now had it. We really need to learn from it, take it as a strong signal about what the future looks like and make the necessary adjustments to anticipate their effects and to the extent to which we are able, adapt to them, uh, in concert with continuing to work on mitigation. Because if we don't take the heat out of the system, then it, it'll get to a point where uh, adaptation and the su subsequent resilience that's required uh, will not be achievable. We simply won't be able to adapt nor be resilient to the, to the circumstances and their effects. So you've gone part of the way to answering this next question, but I still want to ask, were we properly prepared for the recent bushfire season or have we been a bit too conservative in terms of risk modelling and mitigation measures in, in our futures planning? I think it's variable. I think some aspects of society and some quarters of government had anticipated well. Uh, but I'd have to say, and, and, and community uh, more broadly, of course, um, but I'd have to say overall, I don't think we were well prepared. I, I say that simply because we we talk a lot about preparation, of course, and we talk a lot about response. And we've done a lot in that space to prepare for these things to manifest. But what we haven't done well is prepare for the losses that result and how we're going to manage those large-scale losses and the long-term effects that arise from them. So because we don't like crisis and we don't like disaster and we don't like their effects, we tend not to hold space with their with the analysis of those effects long enough in the public policy space. So response gets a lot of attention, preparation, mitigation, risk reduction gets a reasonable amount of attention, uh, recovery doesn't. We really have to get a grip on what it is that's valuable within the context of what's valuable, what are we prepared to lose and what are we not prepared to lose because we are going to lose things. And if we want any evidence of that, every disaster, we lose things, of course, but we lost a lot this summer. We lost the lives of 33 people, 5,000 structures, a billion animals, and over 12 million hectares of, of um, land uh, burnt and all the subsequent impacts and cascading effects that arise from that. So we've lost a lot. We've lost an enormous amount. Um, have we contextualised that loss? No, we haven't. Uh, could we have anticipated it? To a degree, yes, not specifically, but generally I think we probably could have. 
could we have understood better what was truly valuable to us as a society and the communities within? Yes, we could have. Did we do that? No, we didn't. So we had to work that out after the fire went through. Could we have known more about what was valuable to people and society before the fire? Yes, we could have. And I think that's where the work is. But at the end of the day, we have to face the fact that these things cause great consternation and we lose a lot when they impact. And inevitably, because of the nature of these events and their severity and intensity, there is in fact on certain days little we can do about them in a response sense, which means that the losses will grow significantly. And in the context of that, as I keep saying, you know, what, what's valuable? Where do we need to put our efforts first and foremost? What do we need to protect that's, you know, that's non-negotiable in terms of loss? And I'm not talking about life because that's clearly non-negotiable. That's sacrosanct. But there are many other things in society that are important to us that we don't know enough about that we should either be protecting or prioritising to returning back to some level of functionality, normality or replacement or restoration. Uh, And I think that's really where most of the work is, Chris. All right, let's talk about one element of the response, and that's the actual fighting, the, the fi- say, the fire that we just experienced this summer. Seeing megafires like this on a scale that, as you said, we, we may not have seen before, do we have to shift from our traditional responses in fighting these fires, or is it more about scaling up current capabilities to meet the scaled-up challenge? Um, the, the, the difficulty is, and I've published on this academically, is that um, our capability past the intensity of severe. So once you move into to, um, extreme to catastrophic and using bushfire as a, as a classic example of that, but it could equally occur in flood or cyclone, is that our capability to combat these things actually falls away. Uh, it becomes less effective. So to give you a, a really practical example, that on catastrophic fire weather days, it's almost impossible to fly aircraft. It's too dangerous. We can't get them in the air, so therefore we can't water bomb. Uh, we can't run surveillance over the top of the fire grounds, and so it goes on. Um, we can't. Get, is that because the, the heat is too yeah, high? The convections are too dangerous. The, the the convections are just too dangerous for aircraft to fly. The winds are too strong, and the payloads that they carry in in those sort of conditions just make it too hazardous for the pilots. And, so we have to scale down capability. We can't get firefighters in because it's too dangerous you know, for them as well. And so what ends up happening is that the fire goes wherever it wants for as long as it wants, whilst ever the weather conditions prevail and there's enough fuel. And we saw that happen on a number of occasions. You know, The Deputy Commissioner of the Rural Fire Service in South Wales said on more than one occasion, there's nothing more we can do. That was a very honest reflection of the operational situation. I think he was being brutally honest about that and there was an enormous gap between what they were capable of doing and what needed to be done and what needs to be done is only going to get worse it's only going to get more intense and more severe so if the capabilities become naturally limited and they do it is going to be very hard to push past them we can make incremental improvements in capability but we're, we're making incremental improvements against an exponential increase in impact and intensity and frequency. And so that gap is going to continue to grow. So to answer your question, whilst incrementally improving firefighting capability is a good thing, and we should continue to do that and look in any way, shape or form that we can to to get those improvements, uh, it's not going to be enough on its own to deal with this problem. And 
More importantly, if we only leave this ultimately as a response problem, in other words, we'll deal with the fires when they happen, then quite frankly, we've lost the plot. Uh, it's not good enough to say that we'll deal with the fires on the day. It's unfair to the volunteer fire services and the career fire services that have to combat these things and all the support agencies that, that, that uh, work with them. And it's not fair on community to say, oh, and by the way, in those circumstances, you need to be resilient. Because if the government can't cope, if the limitations of the institutions um, have manifested and they can do no more, what does that mean for the public? Uh, they can't do any more. They're doing the best they can as well. So if the government can't do any more and the community can't do any more, who plugs the gap in the middle? And the gap in the middle is enormous and it's growing. It's not shrinking, it's growing. So that's the problem we now face from a public policy perspective is that we cannot continue to load the citizen up with doing even more than we've asked them to do and governments appear to be constrained, at least from a response perspective, on having any material effect or physical effect on these events because of their intensity. So that's a that's a really complex problem, Chris, but it's one that needs to be dealt with. Notwithstanding the constraints that surround our response, given the intensity of some of these fires or whether it be cyclones or any other natural disaster, there's been a lot of discussion about involving the Defence Forces in this kind of response have you got a position on this discussion yourself? Yes, I do. I think it's worthwhile. I think the Prime Minister um, found himself in a very difficult position. I had quite some empathy for his view, understanding the arrangements constitutionally and how they operate. Um, and he had postured to be of assistance to New South Wales in accordance with the constitutional arrangements. I think it became uh, obvious to everybody as the fire progressed on the South Coast, particularly around New Year's Eve and into New Year's Day, that something extraordinary was required. And uh, the Prime Minister acted, and I support the Prime Minister in that decision. And I know it caused consternation for the jurisdiction, and I understand their position as well. And I think that that's what these events are doing. They're breaking rules. They're, they're they're moving beyond limitations of legislation, constitution, policy, strategy, structure, and capability. They're moving past all of those things and forcing people essentially to have to deal ethically. And I'm not saying that, you know, prior to that it's unethical, quite the opposite, but but it becomes fundamentally a decision, a, a, a matter for ethics. What's the right thing to do here? What What is the right thing to do? Because the 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 structural and constitutional and legal arrangements are not working. So, and you still need to do the right thing. What's the right thing to do? In the Prime Minister's mind, it was to activate the Defence Force. Um, it opens up a dialogue now about what's Defence's role into the future, and I think that's a healthy dialogue, and the Royal Commission will deal with that. And I think it should deal with it. So, does Defence have a role to play into the future? Absolutely it does. We should articulate that clearly. We should design and posture for it. Uh, it should be, you know, meshed and integrated seamlessly with civilian capability, uh, all in the interests of public safety. Um, now, what it looks like, that's a matter of prescription, which I think we need to work through. So it was a pivotal moment, and it caused a lot of consternation and grief. It caused the New South Wales Rural Fire Service Commissioner immense grief, and I understand uh, why that would, because he was planning an operation with a certain level of capability and 
and that was appeared to be disrupted by the Commonwealth's decision. So, uh, you know, I think he had reason to be of concern. But I think the Prime Minister had a reason to be concerned as well. And, you know, I had to explain this to someone the other day, having, ser- having served three Prime Ministers in my role as Director General of VMA, uh, I well understood the expectations of a national electorate on the shoulders of a Prime Minister in such circumstances. And even though constitutionally it, it to act would have been unwise or unconstitutional or illegal or whatever term you want to use, uh, a Prime Minister of the day has to respond to the will of the people. And that might get up the noses of others, but that's the job. And, and I think that was uh, ultimately acquitted in the right way, in the right direction. So that's what these things do, Chris. They break rules. They exceed limitations. They put pressure on people. The right thing still has to be done. What is the right thing? It'll come down to the judgment of the leadership. Uh, and then we clean up the mess later. And that's essentially what we're doing now. Could we have anticipated that? It's a big question. There's a yes and a no to that. I think ultimately, yes, we could have, but we didn't. And so we need to move past that, but get better at our anticipatory capacity into the future. To take the lesson and say this exceeded all of our expectations, but it's likely to continue to do that, let's get better at the anticipatory capacity. In terms of exceeding our expectations, are there any other flashpoints similar to the fires that we saw in the summer that we're also missing? In other words, what are the large-scale crises that keep you awake at night? I think it's we're still pursuing these effects and trying to adapt to them with traditional methods. We need a much, much bigger conversation in society about where and how we place ourselves upon the landscape in anticipation of a intensifying and more frequent natural hazard space. And that's a very difficult conversation. It's had piecemeal. It's had in you know small corners and pockets of society. It's very difficult to hold it on the public policy agenda at the national level. I think, again, the Royal Commission is looking at it. I'll be very interested to see what recommendations they make in that regard. But to answer your question directly, I, I just what bothers me a lot is that we have an enormous opportunity through science, good public policy and supported by anticipatory capacity to get ahead of these things and to start making decisions in the best interests of, of community. And we're not doing it because on some level we don't want to know. And that's the thing that keeps me awake, that Nature is, I've said this for years in my public policy addresses, that nature is very kind to personify it. She's very kind because she will tell you what she's about to do, but she won't ask you. So there's no choice. There's simply no choice. But the antecedent conditions are highly overt, but we're still not seeing them because we choose not to see them. So the data for climate change is unambiguous. It's just unambiguous. It may be politically difficult, it may have been confused by you know, amplifying and attenuating narratives of climate depending upon your political position, but the data speaks for itself. The science speaks for itself. Uh, yet we still won't take it seriously on some level and, and we suffer the consequences of that. So that's the thing that keeps me awake, Chris, is that the, the climate nature is trying to tell us something and we don't want to listen. Why, why don't we want to listen? Is, is that ec- economic? Is it political, ideological? Well, all why of those are we reasons, listening? and ultimately it's inconvenient. And I, I go back all the way to the, you know, to Thomas Hobbes in the 1600s who made the statement, 
and he said that nature in order to be commanded must be obeyed. And we live in a society that commands nature or tries to and, ex- and exploit the resources for the, you know, the prosperity and the well-being and the liberties of humanity and has forgotten the respect bit. And we've got to get back to respecting nature uh, and her forces and her needs. And she has needs and demands which are not negotiable, simply not negotiable. And part of that demand is the expression of force, that the force of earth, wind, fire and water, and those things are intensifying and we are not respectful enough of their effects and we need to be. We're not in charge here, Chris. We think we are. We're not. I, I, I've been in this space my whole adult life. I remember saying to a, to a minister, in fact, it was a chief minister, he rang me up when I was commissioner and said, you know, why aren't we in charge of this thing? Or why is this fire still running? And I had to say to him, Chief Minister, uh, we're not in charge at the moment, the fire is. We haven't got control. When we get control, then we can do something about it. And he said, you know, I'd never thought about it that way before. He said, I always thought you were in control from the from the minute you responded. I said, no, that's not the way it works. The way it works is we have to arrest control and we only get it when the fire ground is prepared to give it to us. And if the conditions are that severe and intense, then we won't get it until those conditions abate. And then we have half a chance of getting control and half a chance of commanding, you know, our futures in relation to those potential impacts. So this notion of being in charge or in control from the minute that something starts is a, is folly. It's complete nonsense. Nature is in charge until she decides to hand it over. Uh, that's just a reality in the world of natural hazards, uh, operations and all that comes with it. And I just think we would do well to understand that more profoundly, to anticipate those effects and to do something about it in a policy sense before we have to deal with it in a response sense. You know, at the end of the day, is it fair and reasonable to place that burden upon citizens to be resilient in such intense circumstances? And is it reasonable to place volunteers and career staff and all of the support mechanisms into the same environment where we could have done something about it to to make the entire environment safer, less hazardous and more survivable? I hope that these questions are going to be taken much more seriously after the experiences of the last summer. Well, that seems like as good a place as any for us to take a quick break. So I'm going to crawl out from underneath of my my pillow and doona fort and stretch my legs. And uh, we will be back in a minute with more on crisis management and disaster response with Mr. Mark Crosweller. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
So we are back with Mr. Mark Crosweller to talk about the preparation, the management, handling and response to crises from climate change to COVID-19. Now, Mark, as we discussed in our last pod in this special series on climate change, we noted the massive amount of disinformation that swirled around the recent bushfire crisis in Australia. And we're now seeing a similar situation with the coronavirus outbreak. How important is clear messaging in a time of crisis and how can government and the relevant authorities make their message cut through the the jungle of conspiracy theories, ideological meme wars and straight up bullshit that crowds public discussion so badly these days? It's a it's a it's a contemporary question, no doubt about that. I think um, accuracy of information is important. Confidence in messaging is also important. But I, I think also uh, the question of relatedness. And what I mean by that is that the leadership genuinely exhibits that it understands, appreciates, and empathises with the citizen about their experience, and then instills confidence in the citizen that they are doing everything that they can and will express everything that they know about what's happening and what needs to be done. If we're ambivalent or ambiguous with our messaging, then we very quickly undermine the confidence that the citizen places in the government or the institution to take instruction. The bushfire crisis, I think, uh, overall was handled very well in terms of the public messaging, and there's been plenty of media commentary about that in all states and territories, which I think is uh, certainly a massive improvement on where the sector was, say, 10 years ago, when messaging was you know, very difficult and uh, warnings were very ad hoc and uncoordinated, and the Victorian Bushfires Royal Commission certainly highlighted that, as did the Queensland Flood Inquiry a couple of years later. So, so full marks to the industry for... Uh, improving on the public messaging and public warning space. And I think we saw the tangible benefits of that in terms of the relatively low loss of life that has resulted from such a catastrophic season. COVID-19, I empathise with the government to a point. I think it was difficult to understand the nature of the virus and what it had the potential to do. I think the health authorities struggled with getting that context and that came out in a somewhat confused narrative. As I said to someone the other day that where we're at now, so essentially most of our liberties and freedoms are currently being denied in quite a substantial way. Could you have enacted that in the Australian community in a single day or a single week? And the answer, I think, is profoundly no. Would we have tolerated that decision on day one? Absolutely not. I think we've all had to warm to the proposition of of being highly constrained in our mobility and capacity to make uh, physical contact with our people that we love and that we like and that we work with. So we've had to, you know, navigate our, navigate our way into the denial of freedom and liberty. We couldn't do that quickly. And Do, and do you fine. think that that was a conscious strategy on behalf no. of the government? No, I don't. I don't at all. I think it was an example of the government being human and, and, and struggling with the reality of that decision like everybody else. And I think it's such a big decision to make and it's such an inconvenience to the course of our lives and what we're used to in terms of... Um, daily routines and rituals. The government's human as well. I think it struggled to come to terms or accept that that's what had to happen for you know personal, professional, political and other reasons. I think we all struggled with that. So on one level, bizarrely, I think it kind of showed that they were human. But we got there and the message is much clearer. You know, I take my head off to the Chief Medical Officer. I think Professor Brendan Murphy's messaging is very powerful and consistent. Uh, has some, it has a degree of empathy to it. You know, it's about saving lives and 
not wanting people to go through, you know, what is a harrowing experience for more, more than people realise, I think. And, um, and the Prime Minister has also moved from a fairly sterile, you know, economic narrative to a much more considered uh, and empathetic narrative, but it's, again, taken a while to get there. Now, that's not a criticism of either, uh, either person. I think it's just a reality of the magnitude of the situation and how long it can take to move into that more uh, nuanced space of narrative. So, look, to be straight up about it, I think who's done it better is Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand. And I think the reason she's been able to do that better is that she has a an ethical premise to her leadership uh, founded upon kindness, empathy and well-being. And she m- manages her government through those ethics and that's what drives her as a leader uh, and I think she got to that more empathetic and compassionate narrative much quicker than just about any other global leader. I think the only one who came close was probably Angela Merkel. But most of the leadership across the world has been quite rational, quite you know economically motivated, a little bit distant from the impacts of the people and how they're feeling. But we've all got there, I think. So let's take that lesson and let's make sure that our narratives and messaging is much clearer sooner next time, but also genuinely understands the plight of the people and speaks to that plight in a in, with as much integrity, commitment and honesty as one can muster. And people will be very sensitive to that message if it's simply spin or political rhetoric. They'll pick it up intuitively and not believe it. So it's got to come with sincerity and it's got to come with integrity. How much should the public actually expect government to do when leading on issues like climate change? Should the should the public be taking more responsibility itself or is it the role of government to always be out in front leading society on issues like this? It's the government's responsibility, full stop. You can't expect... The citizen can only do so much. The citizen can change the light bulbs, modify the landscape, change their personal behaviours, make smarter choices about carbon production in terms of their purchasing power and so on and so forth. But governments shape societies and governments create societies. They don't just happen by adding water. They're intentioned. They're intentioned by the people who hold the equities of power, wealth and resource. That's the marketplace. Uh, the big corporations and its government. And unless those entities, those institutions of power, wealth, resource, and the equities that attach, unless they make conscious decisions about climate and a better world, it's not going to happen. And, and I think it's very easy for a government, and many governments do this, well, quite happy on the basis of small government, contestability, low taxation, and market economies and ultimately market societies to work out this problem. I think that's the wrong answer. I think this needs government leadership. It's too complex a problem to leave it to the market. In fact, ironically, parts of the market are ahead of the government on this issue anyway. But I don't see that as necessarily a good thing. It's a good thing at one level that something's happening. But on another level, I think the government can certainly be much more aggressive on decarbonising the economy in a sensible and innovative way. I do struggle in this country to understand... For a country that's prided itself on innovation and technology and science and all that comes with it, that we're not having active conversations about transitioning the economy, that we can't, we can't even have that conversation. I, I find that fascinating, uh, that, that we don't have the innovation or the will or the courage to look at how do we transition the economy in a sensible period of time that benefits as many people as possible and respects the need for employment 
to remain in place with all the rituals and values that attach um, to where we live and how we live. I think those things are very important. But we're not having those conversations and we seem to be stuck. And I think that's very unfortunate. So should governments lead? Yes, they should. Can the people lead on this? Well, they can certainly express their sentiments. And I know that uh, there's many mixed views about climate out there at the moment, but increasingly so, people accept two things. One, the climate is changing, and two, that it's human-caused. And I think the numbers speak for themselves on both those issues, and it is time that we did more. I understand the political complexities of the issue. For many people, of course, they look at climate as a polarised political issue, so the advocates uh, from a political perspective are perceived at least to be polarised towards the left and the the deniers or those that aren't sure or, or, or are, are ambiguous or unclear on the issue tend to be polarised towards the right. And that's really where the debates are held, at, you know, at the far left and the far right on the issue. Most people sit in the middle <clears throat> and most people would say, sensibly so, we need to do something and the sooner we do it, the better. But they rarely get heard. But I'm, I'm convinced that that's the majority of the Australian population. So if we can get the debate back to the middle and get some bipartisan support on the big issues, and it can be partisan on some of the details around implementation, but the big issues really need to be bipartisan so we can get past the blockages and get on with it. Because, Chris, we just saw the, the manifestation of climate effect this summer, and I just don't know how much more evidence we need. <laughs> I really don't. I had never seen in my 35 years, which is not long in climate terms, a landscape so dry and so volatile to the point where anything and everything contained within it, apart from the clearly non-flammables of metal, for example, and brick and stone and concrete, but everything else was flammable and ready to burn and did so. I watched much of the TV coverage, and I was fascinated to see structures, buildings, properties that were well-prepared, exceptionally large fuel-free zones or uh, fuel-reduced zones burnt to the ground. Why did they burn to the ground? Because the entire structure was volatile to fire because of the prolonged drought that had preceded the fire season, and it only took one airborne ember to ignite that structure. So we've just come through a society that was completely volatile and flammable to fire that could burn, and it did. And it burned in ways that we haven't seen in the course of a lifetime. How much more evidence do we need? I, 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 just, don't know, I just don't know what else people want. <laughs> I really yeah, don't. Yeah, honestly, living in the bush capital, Canberra, Every day, just walking out your door, seeing the environment around you, it was so obvious and extreme of how dry we were. And it was so obvious to me that I put together a grab bag for my family. Even though I live in the middle of suburbia, I was so concerned that a fire so large would sweep through Canberra again, like it did a decade or so ago, that we literally prepared grab bags and took them with us whenever we went out in the car. Everything was just so dry. Yes. There was one argument that was put forward that we'd had fires, or, or for example, the Sydney Basin filled up with smoke. And people said, oh, yes, that happened back in, I think it was 1932. And somebody reproduced the front page of a Sydney newspaper to show that the Sydney Basin in 1932 was full of smoke. So therefore, it's happened before. I had to point out to people that in 1932, we didn't have a $10 billion firefighting capability working on these fires. We did this year 
and we still fill the Sydney Basin full of smoke. So what does that say about the intensity, the spread, the frequency and the size of these fires? That, that despite all of the capability that we had to do something about them, we were still getting impacts of f- filling the entire Sydney Basin with smoke. It is clearly worse than it was in the 30s or the 40s. And I just think we have to accept that, get to root cause, deal with decarbonising the economy, learn to adapt, make big policy decisions about adaptation and mitigation, all for two reasons. One is to protect our environment, including the landscape and the atmosphere, and more importantly, protect the lives, the well-being and the health of people and ecologies and so on and so forth. So I'd like to move to some of the larger scale and uh, conceptual and philosophical issues. Before we start doing that, can you define what resilience means in this respect? So in a policy sense and in an academic sense, it's a boundary object. So it's pretty much, you know, I'm being a bit flippant, but it's pretty much whatever you want to make it mean, really. And people use words like bounce back, resistance, being stoic, growing stronger. I mean, there's all sorts of ways of describing resilience. So I think for me, at a human level, it's about developing the capacity and the skill and having the opportunity to exercise agency in order to navigate the complexity of natural hazards and come out the other side as best as you can and recover as best as you can, uh, contextualise the experience over time and to move on with a productive life. It doesn't mean automatically becoming stronger, for example. And what predicates resilience and what's fundamental to resilience, particularly for humans, is the opportunity to have agency, to be able to exercise free will and choice in the best interests of oneself and those things and those people that are important to us. That means that there needs to be good structural, economic and social supports in place that give people the best opportunity to be able to do that. The problem we have at the moment in resilience is that increasingly the structural, economic and social supports are not there for increasing numbers of people and we're still asking them to be resilient. In fact, governments predicate success upon people being that way. Whether they can be or not is a different question, but the fact that they want them to be that way kind of predicates the success of a government in in these times of crisis. So what does it mean to be resilient? It depends on who you ask, actually. But, But I think the reality is that increasingly so, people can be resilient to a point, but then hit a threshold where they become vulnerable. So their resilience runs out. And you can understand why in a fire season like we've just been through or a flood season we went through a couple of years ago in Queensland that, you know, the citizen can only really do so much or be expected to do so much in terms of resilience before they hit a point of being vulnerable, highly vulnerable. And at that point, uh, you know, the, the profound question is, is it reasonable to seek government and other assistance? And I think the answer has to be yes. But more often than not, the answer is no, that citizens need to do more. And sure, some people can do more. I've seen in the course of my career some people who've done very little to prepare, who had full agency, who are economically prosperous, uh, who had social support, functional social networks and were insured and all the things you need to be resilient and still fail to act. Well, there's probably room for criticism for those people. But the problem is we take that criticism and we apply it to people who don't have the structural, economic and social support um, are struggling to make ends meet, don't have, have necessarily the physical nor mental capacity to be resilient, 
but are expected to be nonetheless. And I think that's where we're falling down. So I think we've got a resilience is a complex issue. I think we have to be much more granular in our understanding and much more, if you like, nuanced in the way that we apply it and go looking for and actively pursue and rectify the vulnerabilities in society that prevent people from being resilient. Because most people, if you give them half the chance, will desire to be that way. But increasingly, people don't have the chance to do resilience or be resilient to the extent to which the government relies upon them in order to take pressure off the government system. I'm going to move to the ethical approach in a minute, but I'd like to stick on the practical issues for a moment. When you were head of the National Resilience Task Force, you oversaw the release of the report, which was titled, uh, was it Profiling Australia's Vulnerability, the Interconnected Causes and Cascading Effects of Systemic Disaster Risk. In that report, it was noted that vulnerability is in part influenced by the interconnected and global system of supply that relies on the continuing operation of of bottlenecks such as logistical nodes for transshipment of merchandise, the reliance on imported liquid fuels and the industry standard of just-on-time delivery of goods. The current global health crisis caused by the coronavirus outbreak has highlighted one of these precise issues, and that's the manufacture and delivery of personal protective equipment that people are hearing it called PPE in the media these days. Um, We also saw during the bushfire crisis that with the reliable transmission of electricity, was central to many other critical elements of dealing with the crisis, such as you know the flow of information, being able to recharge your, your mobile phone battery so you can get in touch with people, uh, being able to access the internet to find out what the latest updates are, or even just the power to run your water pumps. Do you see these experiences that we've we lived through in earlier 2020 and we're now living through with COVID-19, do you see these experiences as having an impact on how we manage risk, uh, how we we build resilience in Australia and, and how are we best able to harness these experiences to actually benefit from them? So look, I think we, we live in a, a society that's just in time. We, we don't have any or little latent capacity in our supply chains or in our warehousing, for example. So the fact that we don't have sufficient PPE to deal with a pandemic response, even though we know about pandemic and its effects, is a really good insight into a system that on one level understands the need for it. Somebody's probably written a plan about it. So it's in documentation somewhere, but it hasn't manifested in terms of action. So there's not a sufficient stockpile because it hasn't moved to um, doing something about it. So having a good idea or having a plan is one thing, but then operationalizing that plan and making sure that there are physical resources in anticipation of something like COVID-19 is really important. I think the same is true of the bushfires and um, the interdependency and interconnectedness of our critical systems and the human security that arises from dependence upon those two things. So as you rightly point out, you know, mobile phones are a big part of feeling safe. It's how we get warnings from the fire services. When that system fails, we no longer feel safe. So it's critical. It's a critical system. Um, We've built our warning systems for fires, floods, storms and cyclones on the telecommunications network in Australia. That's how it's delivered. Uh, If that network cannot withstand or survive or stand up 
in the face of such intense natural hazard activity, then straight away we put people under threat because they can't receive information, they can't get a warning, and they lose context really quickly about what, you know, what's the best thing or the next thing to do. So we've got to think much more seriously about this problem. I think it exists in planning on some level. I think people have agreed in, on a piece of paper that these things need to be done, but the extent to which they've been manifest physically... I still question, and I did question that when I was head of task force, and I certainly questioned it as Director General of EMA, but, you know, to what extent were these things uh, real? So, yes, they've been planned for, but where was the evidence? I never got to unpackage that in any significant way, of course, but I never stopped asking the question, and I think we should continue to ask the question about, you know, how realistic are our plans? How realistic are our insights? Have they manifested in such a way that we can turn those things into a physical reality or are they just theories on a piece of paper? So planning's good, don't get me wrong. It's good that someone's thought about it, but could they operationalise it? And unfortunately, budgets are so tight and the relentless pursuit of efficiencies in, in the public expenditure of funds has been such that most of the latent capacity or uh, ability to put some latent capacity in most of our systems is no longer available to us. So the plan exists, but the physical manifestation of the resources in order to enact that plan, obviously in this case in COVID-19, for example, appear to have been found wanting. So it's a problem. It's definitely a problem and it's a systemic problem. Uh, And I think it's a problem of not necessarily putting the issue high enough on the risk registers of corporations and governments because of all the other pressures that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. But COVID-19, I mean, you know, it will fundamentally reshape society. And as some epidemiologists were saying the other day as I was talking to them, that this might be a one-in-a-hundred-year event, which is a measure of intensity, not frequency. And who's to say we won't have another one in five to ten years? And if we've just put, you know, the best part of half a trillion dollars of our economy into, into sustaining it, getting it through, can we afford to do that again in five years' time? or 10 years' time, I suspect the economists will fall off their chair at the, at the proposition of that occurring. So what does all of that mean? It means we better take the big lessons from this, be much more astute about how we deal with it, and look at our critical systems and factor in, in a much more profound way, these impacts. Most disasters in a budgetary sense are dealt with as contingent liabilities, So they're dealt with as outliers or as rare events that are just dealt with as they happen. My argument is that they should be part of the economic cycle and part of the budget cycle, that they've got to be factored in as part of a budget reality and put the fat back into the system where it's necessary to do so or put enough flexibility into the system that we can move move quickly if we need to. But we tend to ignore these problems. We tend to deal them in a planning context as a response problem and then clean up the mess as a contingent liability after the effect or after the event. And I don't think we can afford to do that anymore. Climate change and COVID-19 are both policy issues that demand us to think about our ethical responsibilities to those more vulnerable than us. Our political leadership seems to concur with this on COVID-19, but maybe not so much on climate change. Where are the opportunities to build social cohesion, develop better compassion in policymaking and increase national resilience as we battle our way through this pandemic, using that as a springboard to bring more uh, understanding, compassion and empathy into our policymaking and planning? 
So what COVID-19 has done, which is what the bushfires have done, which is what every natural disaster does, is it shows society where the vulnerabilities are. These disasters don't create vulnerabilities. The vulnerabilities already exist. They're they're built in structurally, economically, socially. Um, In other words, we create them in society. All the disaster does is shows us where they are. It's, It's all it does. It simply says, oh, by the way, it's here, here and here. Now, we, could, we already know those things on some level, but we, again, fail to do something about them. So if we're serious about resilience, about having a more resilient society in anticipation of increasing frequencies and intensities, then we have to be serious about elevating people's capacity to be that way, which means inherently removing as much of the vulnerability from people as possible. So there are some people who live in uh, difficult places, live in low-lying areas that consistently flood. As a society, we're going to have to take responsibility for that and work out how do we put greater protections in place for those people. It's the same with fire. You know, the little townships of Cabago and the other townships on the south coast of New South Wales, many will struggle to survive because they were struggling already. It's not like they're struggling now because of the fire. They were already struggling uh, it just makes the struggle even worse. So that economic disparity and difficult social conditions was, you know, in, in place well before the fires went through. And many people knew about that, of course, and to the extent to which, you know, something was done about it or could be done about it, well, you know, that's a subject of a complex debate. But but to do nothing or to ignore or to put it off for a rainy day or whatever is really not helpful. So if we want to get better at this, then we've got to, really embrace our knowledge of the vulnerabilities within society and make the structural, economic and social changes to give people the best chance possible to navigate these things. Then then we can have a proper partnership between governments and, and citizens about how to navigate it. But if the citizens are already on the back foot because of inequities in those aspects of economics and social policy and, and the structural arrangements that surround them, then they're on the back foot before we even start. And I keep saying this, most people given half a chance will do the right thing, but they've got got to be given half a chance. And and I just don't think we've taken that seriously enough. So if we're going to be more empathetic and more compassionate in this space, I think we've got to genuinely understand the plight of people and how they've ended up where they've ended up and what is it that we can reasonably, and, you know, Chris, maybe even unreasonably do. Maybe we've got to do unreasonable things to help people to, to prepare for these impacts and to be better positioned for them. And maybe we've got to be unreasonable about putting in more resilient economies and bolstering job opportunities and standards of living so that we do give people that chance to do the right thing because the vast majority of people will and do, in fact, want to, but many are constrained for a whole range of reasons. So vulnerability to me is the key. If we understand that better, if we tackle it uh, more comprehensively, if we redistribute some of those things that tend to be polarised in society at the moment, then we stand a much better chance of navigating through these and, and coming back coming back quicker, hopefully coming back better. That'll be contingent upon a whole range of different circumstances, but nonetheless, it's a wish that we should hold. But we can't do it with, with the current structural deficiencies and the inequities within the system. It's just, it just isn't, it isn't working now and it's not going to work into the future. 
So, Mark, this year on the Natsec pod, we are posing questions to our guests about seminal experiences that have guided their thinking throughout their career. What's one of those experiences that you've had that's shaped your outlook on the world? And this can be anything from a book that you've read, a place that you've travelled to, or even just a conversation that you've had. Okay. 35 years in crisis, you know, taught me something. <clears throat> did it teach me everything? No. Is there more to learn? Absolutely. But what it did teach me was that humanity had this extraordinary ability to rise up in the face of adversity and do and you know the, to, to do the best they could in the worst of circumstance. And fundamentally what that meant was that people were able to express compassion, to see the suffering of another human being and do something about it reasonably or unreasonably and i've watched i've watched great examples of people being compassionate within the institutions you know within the fire services and police forces and politicians and you know administrators i mean you know people really really going out of their way to help people and i've seen the same on the side of the citizen as well and then i watched society return to normal and all that goodwill and all that compassion disappears and i ask myself why why does that happen? Why, why is it that we're able to express it in times of adversity, but we can't express it in everyday life? The reality is if we expressed it in everyday life, we wouldn't have half the, the structural, social and economic problems that we have at the moment. So the crisis or disaster tends to come along quite frequently, more frequently than we realise, and remind us of our humanity, remind us of what we're capable of, and tries to call us into extending that capability into everyday life. So if we if we can bring these disasters into our minds as part of nature, as part of the cycle, as part of her expression of force, what does that mean for us? Generally speaking, it's unpleasant. Uh, what can we do about it? How can we position for it? Then that must necessarily mean we need to be more compassionate. Our policies need to be more compassionate and we need to develop a wisdom about what it means to be compassionate because to be compassionate means to take the suffering away from another human being or to prevent it or to hold space with them as they go through the experience. I can tell you, Chris, none of that is soft, fuzzy or warm. That requires great courage, great tenacity and great wisdom and they're the things that we're missing. If we can bring that into public policy and commit to getting better at about how we do that, understanding that we'll never be perfect, there'll always be more to learn and we will make mistakes along the way. But if we don't give up on our resolute determination to be a more compassionate society, then we will get past these more complex problems. We will reduce the impacts. We will have to rely, well, probably always rely as much as we are now on our fire services and all that comes with it. But the impact, the effects will be less because we would have positioned better for them. We would have taken the premise of being more compassionate and understanding it profoundly about what it means to suffer and what you can do about it to reduce that suffering, have that filter through our public policies and our leadership, and then we're much better prepared, much better prepared. So what did 35 years in crisis teach me? The power of compassion the power of people's ability to see the suffering of another human being and do something about it. And it left me with the profound question, why is it we only tend to do that in adversity? Why can't we do that in every single day of our society? If we did it in every single day of our society, the impact of crisis simply would not be as great. What a, you know, what a great proposition. What a, what a nice place to be. 
On a podcast that discusses national security, we most often focus on concepts such as geopolitics, technology, uh, the challenges to policymaking in and of itself. However, this discussion today reminds us of what it actually is that we are securing, and it's people. All national security policy is eventually about securing society and the people within it. Mark Crosweller, thanks very much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. You're very welcome, Chris. And a big thanks to Mark for getting on the line and chatting with us here at the National Security Podcast. This episode wraps up our special series on the national security implications of climate change with a dash of COVID-19. And at this point, I would like to offer an apology. We have just recorded a three-part series and not one of our guests was a woman. It doesn't matter whether this was deliberate on our part or even if we tried to organise women guests and failed. The point is that women in national security is a core focus of the National Security College and there's no excuse for having what was essentially a mantle podcast. We must and we will do better and I apologise for getting it wrong this time. So, on that note... Do get in touch with any feedback you may have on this special series or any of the pods that we've recorded. We're keen to receive your thoughts on what we've discussed and what we might talk about in future episodes or even how we might just improve the pod in general. You can get in touch with us using Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or you can get in touch with me at NatSecPod. You can join the Policy Forum Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod, or you can go old school and drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. Be sure to also hit up policyforum.net for more podcasts and publications that discuss public policy challenges. And if you're keen for a career in national security policymaking, be sure to check out the National Security College website for our academic and professional development courses. But in the meantime, thanks very much for listening and we will speak to you on the next episode of the National Security Podcast. Podcast.